Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Thanks for joining me. Hope your, what do I call it, training and practice seasons are going well. By training, I mean your dog. By practice, I mean training you to be a better shooter. Yeah, we're all working on that. In fact, I'm sorry, Rob. I had to turn down that invitation today to go out to the range with you. I'll make it up to you real soon. Hey, we got a a fascinating podcast in store for you. It's kind of taking me back to my roots as a business editor way back in the day, uh, talking to two icons in their respective business fields. From Midway USA, we're talking with, yeah, the very own Larry Potterfield, the founder, the guiding light. Yeah, he thanks you for your business every day on television, and I am grateful that he was a guest for us. So looking forward to having him on the show. And later in the podcast after that, we'll get some insights into the high-end shotgun market with Wes Lang of Cesar Guarini, USA. So stick around for some fascinating insights from both those leaders, uh, industry insiders, Everything about guns, uh, tips and ideas, the care and feeding of your firearms, some shopping advice, product insights, and some stuff you'll never get anywhere else in any of the magazines. These are the guys. We're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. We'll also talk a little bit about wor- what you're working on. Yeah, in the you know the practice uh, training world. So uh, get ready for your answers to my question. Uh, me, it's uh, back to basics, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Also, the Upland Nation Glossary gets to the letter S, and we'll have a public access idea for you from the great state of New Mexico. It's all coming up real soon after this quick reminder that we are made possible through the generous contributions of Roughland Performance Kennels sage and breaker gun care products pointer shotguns dr tim's natural performance dog food mid-valley clays and shooting school and the ringneck nation of huron south dakota well it's not a secret you saw it on an episode of wing shooting usa a while back There's a lot of BLM land in New Mexico, and uh, the stuff surrounding Deming, New Mexico, is fascinating for a bunch of reasons. If you're looking to scratch off a couple quail species on your bucket list, you'll find scaled quail and gambles quail down there near the Florida mountains. It's a wilderness study area, so you got to park at the edge and walk in. But it's a, you know, remember when you used to play, we used to call it Big Army. You know, we were the army guys, not the little plastic things. Well, it's a little bit like that. You're um, hoping the dogs are going to find running birds, yeah, because that's what they do in that cactus, Ocotillo, and the desert arroyos out there. But if you can get your dogs on the ground in the right place, and then you do sort of a pincer movement, you know, one group here, one group there, and you kind of squeeze together. That way the birds, as they run, will eventually, much like a pheasant hunt, will fly, and somebody will get a shot at them. It's kind of run-and-gun style, but it does work. Get out the BLM map around Deming, New Mexico. Look for the big yellow patches, particularly the Florida Mountains Wilderness Study Area. Take a lot of water for you and the dog. Get an early start and watch for private property. 
Yeah, like I said, we're brought to you by all those great sponsors. And also, indulge me for a moment. We're talking about the Fur Feathers Friends event. Learn more about how and why you have a chance to show off your dog's skills to somebody else, a guest in the field, if you will. Newcomer, family member, uh, old hunting buddy who's kind of hung up the shotgun, get him back into the field. I just gave away a hunt-ready strap vest to Steven Zirkel, so if you're up for some more prizes, just sign up and tell me you're going to take somebody this season at FurFeathersFriends.com. And when you go, hopefully you're transporting your dog in a Roughland kennel. Learn all about the reasons more dogs ride in a Roughland kennel than any other performance kennel. You know, these days with their new tooling, they are able to put handles on every kennel as part of the deal. Yeah, they are new and improved molds so that everything is precise. And don't worry, everything fits with the stuff you already have. Rufflandkennels.com is where you learn more about all the new tooling, all the new colors, and all the great accessories yeah, if you're traveling, put your dog in the kennel invented by Roto Molding Pros, the first Roto Molded Kennels, RoughlandKennels.com. A pleasure to see him. Every time I uh, get a new book published, he seems to show up in my life, and I'm grateful for that. Larry Potterfield is the founder, the man behind the curtain at Midway USA. We'll go deep into that in a moment. But, Larry, before we start with the uh, other stuff, let's get down to the fun stuff. Tell me about your um, that hunting story you were sharing with me off mic. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm a hunter, and I'm a bird hunter. I shot my first duck when I was nine, I think, my first quail when I was 13. And uh, so I've been doing all this stuff that we say is fun all my life. Uh, We were talking about quail hunting, and we've got on our farm up uh, northwest of here, about 14 miles, we have wild quail. And we work really hard to have more every year. I think we think on 2,000 acres we've got about 20 or 25 covey. And my buddy Dick Leeper and I will go out and chase quail from the 1st of November to the 15th of January. Maybe we get out 20 times or something like that. We kill about 70 or 80 quail a year, hunting two to three hours at a time, jumping as many as four coveys, sometimes no covey. And you know how it is. Sometimes the covey gets up and both of you shoot and get nothing. Sometimes the covey gets up and you don't even get a shot. And then where do they go? I mean, I never find them after that. (laughs) Uh, I'm telling you, we're having trouble. Uh, why, we watch the birds go down. I don't know where yep. they go after, and you go over to get them, and they ain't there. Yep, yep. So anyway, I, I love quail hunting. I wish there was more of it, but uh, I'm interested in all different types of bird shooting. So I've been to Argentina once already this year in March with uh, my son and his family, going again in June to Argentina with uh, um, Brenda and my daughter and her family. And with a half a dozen guys, some managers from Midway, and then I, nobody should feel sorry for me working all the time and not getting to hunt fish because I get to hunt fish too. So driven birds in Europe, I like to do that, get to do that starting in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, 
I've shot sporting clays last night. So, I mean, I'm, uh, I like to shoot and I like to hunt. Okay. We're, we're all officially jealous and, <laughs> uh, and grateful for it. And you brought up somebody I haven't seen in years, Dick Leeper. How the heck is he? Interesting. Dick Leeper is the director of philanthropy for the Potterfield family. Yeah. If you wanted some money from Brenda and I, you have to call Dick Leeper because you can't get through to us. So you call Dick and say, Hey Dick, I want some money for this particular youth uh, shoot that we're going to put on or this youth program. Uh, and that's about the only thing he'll talk to you about. So, because almost all the benevolency that Brenda and I have in the course of a year, uh, is all toward you shooting sports. And so having said that, we give away half of our income each year uh, with the primary bent on you shooting sports. Well, good for you. Good for him. I'll be calling Dick and asking for a handout real soon. I doubt he'll give it to me because I don't qualify as a youth and I'm not a very good shooter. But, uh, that, you know, I, I'm intrigued with all of what you just described for a bunch of reasons. But let's let's start with the basics. Give me the backstory on Midway USA, how you got involved in all that. Then we're going to jump right into this, what I'm going to call your calling. <laughs> Well, I'm a country kid from Missouri, and I told you about my first duck and my first quail. I've never changed from all that. I happened to be educated, so I grew up, and well, I never grew up, but I mean, I got older. Yeah. And I went to college and got a degree in business. Uh, draft was on back then. I served six years in the Air Force. Got out of the Air Force on the 13th day of May and came to Columbia, Missouri, where my younger brother Jerry and I had planned to open a gun shop. And when I got there, Brenda and I got there with two kids. We had a level lot, a one-acre lot, and the building site was level. And in 35 days, keep 35 days now, we, I say we, the, the pole barn went up, just a pole barn, just like you'd have on the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the stuff in it, we built the display cases that I'd shipped down my household goods from South Dakota, put the guns and all the merchandise in them. And 35 days after I got there, we were in business, opened the doors in the Midway USA retail store. Uh, it wasn't called Midway USA. It was called Ely Arms Inc. back then. Another story, but not very important. But anyway, that started the retail business. Uh, I can tell you the rest of it. I mean, I'm sitting here now in, a, in our new distribution center talking to you. That building was 32 feet by 34 by 48, I believe. So 1,500 square feet or something like that was a business. I'm sitting in the break room of a 400,000 square foot distribution center today. I've seen some of the video. It You, you look like an Amazon. <laughs> I mean, it's so automated. It's so technical. Um, what, what a quantum leap. But in between, there was one key critical decision you made, and that was, I can build Midway USA branches all over the country, or I can go the other way, direct. What prompted yeah. that? Um, we 77 is the year the store opened. That's 45 years ago here, the 18th of June. Uh, we started doing some mail order shortly after that, within a year or so. Uh, and mail order is something that you don't have enough demand for to sell in your local store. So maybe some obsolete ammunition or just something there's not enough local demand for to even carry, but there's a national demand and advertising and shotgun news in the old days. And later on after that, the shooting times and guns and ammo and stuff like that, we begin to build a mail order market, if you would. 
we got uh, bulk brass and Starline were coming online back in that same time frame, and we are the Midway is the grandfather, if you would, of the bulk brass business mm-hmm. from from 1979 or 80. So you are building customer base, a national customer base. We closed the retail store in 1984, Christmas of 84, and were mail order only then in 85. So that was seven years into the business. There wasn't a lot of money, so it wasn't like you could just build another business, another building, and do both. You, 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 could, you could only run one mission, and that was the mail order mission, and mm-hmm. it was more, more profitable than retail. So we closed the retail store and were mail order only, and that was January 1 of 1985. Maybe that's the decision back then. And, of course, we'd have had 100 different products we're selling. Today they tell me we got 108,000 products in inventory. Wow. And oh. we're only running an 82% fill rate. So 18% of what we carry we don't have. Just That's just the nature of the way business works. You never have everything you offer. Well, and, we, and hopefully we'll get around to that as well, this whole question of um, the supply chain. And I, I know it's it's become a cliche now, but maybe we'll get around to that. But but first off, have you ever looked back? Have you ever thought, you know, I'd love to put on an apron again and turn over the open sign every morning and be a shopkeeper? Uh, I have never done that. And the reason <laughs> I haven't is because I'm, I'm a fairly serious historian. Uh, uh, and I'm uh, studied genealogy and all that kind of stuff, but there's no, not much value in the past, all the values in the future. And if you're going to serve customers and you talk about serving customers and you believe in that, turning, looking backward, is not going to help you much. You've got to be looking forward to serve customers. How can I serve them better tomorrow? What products do they want? How do they want their product delivered and all that kind of stuff. So, I'm not much of a backward. I talk about things that are part of my past and things that are part of my future and not much of that stuff that you'd like to do. Uh, I still get to pull the trigger on my shotgun pretty regular. I still like old model 12s, but um, uh, I am firmly focused uh, on the future and not the past. Well, you know, it sounds like if there's anything posted in that break room, it is a philosophy of sorts, or if it's not posted there, it's indelibly etched in your mind. And, and it goes beyond um, brass and even firearms now. So, so what is, uh, how would you describe your, your business model these days? Our, our stated uh, mission is we are an internet retailer shooting, hunting, and outdoor products. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a pretty broad thing. We also carry fishing, uh, lots and lots of reloading, uh, gunpowder, gun parts, uh, pretty much anything that I want. But I'm a customer too. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the foremost customer, but if I want something, we ought to have it. I love it. So that, that seems pretty straightforward. What do you carry? Well, whatever Larry wants. Does Larry uh, want more 28 gauge uh, target ammo? Because this Larry on this end would love some more, please. Let me tell you that I was walking through the warehouse and I saw a pallet of 28 gauge Winchester double A's number eights. And I thought, my gosh, I can't believe we've got those. I've got to order some. And so I go look at my stash and I've got about four cases of 20 gauge ammo. And I thought, no, that would be greedy. Uh, I'm not going to get another case, but I did talk to my daughter and talk to my son and talk to Dick Leeper. And all three of those people bought a case ammo, and there's a limit on them, so that's all you can buy. But there was, they were in the building, a case of, or a pallet of them. And wow. We 
lots and lots of customers. So if you were on the waiting list and you got to remind me, then you clean them out. Yeah, that's, I mean, uh, if I had a nickel for every one of those stories I've told, not quite as well as you tell it, but man, oh man. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that, that whole question of, you know, what, just explain for us the challenges you're facing these days when it comes to that 18% that you can't fill and why. Well, uh, first of all, you've got the random uh, nature of demand. So if I've got a product that I sell five of a month and my whole ordering system is set up to sell five a month, plus a little bit of overage, so there's a safety stop there, maybe it's two. So you're set up that you're going to maybe be able to supply a demand of seven or eight. Well, sometimes demand might be 10. Mm -hmm. If it is, then you're going to not have it. And then the manufacturer is set up to deliver stuff, make stuff based on what their historical demand is, and sometimes that falls apart on them. So there's going to be just the standard variability of supply and demand that impacts a little bit of it. I would guess that's about 15%, 12%, something like that. And then you get into, well, what aren't they making? And you know what they aren't making. They're not making the, the more scarce ammunition, the popular ammunition. It's not that they're making. Well, they're not making the scarce stuff because they have to shut down a machine that's making popular stuff in mm -hmm. order to make stuff. They have to retool it. Well, they're not going to do that. So 380 ammo is made on the same machine that 9mm is. If they can sell every round of 9mm that they can make, they just don't retool it. It takes a day and make nine, uh, 380. So we don't get 380. 303 British will be the same way, same machine that makes 30 out six, same equipment. So that's the reason you don't get the less popular stuff. 28 gauge would be one of those things in 410, probably the worst. So the popular stuff comes in every day, and we ship some every day, but there's more demand than there is supply. The non-popular stuff that we also want doesn't come in very often, and it goes out the door, of course, as soon as it comes in like everything else does. So we get product. We get lots of product, but the demand is still twice what the supply is for most of the scarce stuff. Can you give me any hope at all? Is there a light somewhere way down at the end of a very long tunnel? Scott, when you and I change our mind and quit buying two cases instead of one, and the whole world does the same thing, then there'll be plenty of ammo. But as long as you and I think, gee, I'm going to buy two cases, the companies can't make two cases. They can only make one. I mean, they were running at 85% of capacity, mm -hmm. and we want twice as much. And they say, well, we can't make twice as much. We can only make 15% more. So nobody knows what's going to happen as we get into these midterm elections. If it looks like that the Democrats are going to gain seats there and we're going to lose guns and ammo, well, guess what's going to happen to the demand? If it gets pretty logical in June or July, hey, the Democrats are going to lose big, therefore you can keep your guns, well, then the demand will slow down. So the midterms are going to be important on whether you whether this, this availability is continues or whether it slows down. There you go. Speed. Well, uh, enough politics. I quit that business a long time ago on purpose. Um, let's talk about the fun stuff. You, you um, number one, love your uh, videos. Number two, I'm intrigued with your gun care knowledge and insights, and we're going to talk later about that for a moment. But I want to talk now about something near and dear to my heart. I've always been involved in youth activities in one way or another, from Boy Scouts to Little League. Not just playing, 
doing work in those areas you you have chosen uh as one of your missions youth shooting and i want to know why and how and and how how this is all manifesting itself through midway usa and midwayusa.com and by the way everybody you're listening to the upland nation podcast i'm scott linden that's larry potterfield he is mr midway usa so so that's question now yes thank you <laughs> i almost forgot the question why are oh, you why are you doing the youth thing well, <laughs> you let, and- let me go back it was about 1992 so we started in 77 87 15 years in business and we had enough money that we were able to start giving some back so in 15 years you're working your butt off you never have any money it all goes back into the business but by 1992, we were able to start giving away some money. Our very first donations then started then, and it wasn't a lot of money. I mean, a lot to some people, but relative speaking, not a whole bunch of money. That continued to grow all the way through the 90s and into the new uh, into 2000. It was 2008 then, and the business continues to be successful and is generating more money. We can give more money away. And so we started thinking much, much bigger. Uh, there and we decided that the, the number one thing in the industry in the whole world that there was a shortfall on that was probably never going to be addressed was youth shooting sports and we said specifically focused on school so when will there be public money for the local high school or whatever public or private it would be for the local college when would there ever be that money for that sport so that a kid could go to school and shoot trap or skeet or sporting plays the same as they play sports conventional sports and we Mm -hmm. thought well it's never going to happen well why don't we then set up develop the capability that we could help communities raise money for their high school and college shooting teams and we would manage it for them so we went to two different major organizations in the industry and positioned propositioned them to do it they both told us no and so at that time, in 2008, we created the Midway USA Foundation, whose sole mission is to help communities raise money for high school and college shooting sports. Now, we fund that a lot, but it's still a public charity. It's not a private charity. It's a public charity. And when Brent and I have money to give away, we're a lot of times giving it to those people, to that organization. So we put a database together that's got every high school and college shooting team in the world in it. There's 2,800 of them. Today, I believe, and keep in mind that's been 14 years ago, uh, there are 2,800 teams in America that have money in the Midway USA Foundation, endowed money. They can never get the money. Every year they get 5% of it forever. So we help them raise money. We will provide them with a gift or something that they can put a raffle together, raise some money for this year's activities, and also put some money into the Midway USA Foundation that we manage for them. I say we manage. We have an investment group. Mm-hmm. The board of directors mm-hmm. does all that. Goldman Sachs is the company that manages a very substantial amount of money today. I think $250 million, Scott. I mean, the the, the Second largest foundation in the industry, I believe the civilian marksmanship program is first. Uh, but all that money is endowed every year, 5% of it goes to those schools for whatever shooting activities they want. You know what I love most about this concept is number one, you are, um, 
you are providing, in effect, seed money that also turns into incentives for others to spread their fundraising tentacles farther and wider. We, we do all that because all of it is exactly what you need to do, not just one thing. But here's the institution that manages the accounts and manages the money so that nobody needs to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Here's the fundraising items that they can get from us and raise the money. We even help print tickets for them. Uh, and then here's the grant request. It's online. It's just MidwayUSAFoundation.com. Uh, that you can go on to and fill out a grant request. And, I mean, it's amazing. There's a dozen people that work there today. Uh, it's exactly what we would want it to be. It's growing a lot every year. Like to have a billion dollars in it when Brenda and I retire. Uh, don't have any idea what would go from there. But a billion dollars, that's a lot of money. And it all, 5% of that every year goes out to these teams uh, so they can shoot. And next year it's there, and next year it's there, and every year forever that money's there. What is, on a personal standpoint, what has been the most gratifying part of that activity? Brenda and I go to several shoots through the course of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, The national shoot is in uh, Ohio, I believe. Usually, Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, 1,500, 2,000 kids there, all kinds of parents there. I think the most gratifying thing for Brenda and I is when the parents come up and talk to us and tell us that we have changed their kid's life and gave them purpose. They were in high school. It's almost always high school parents with, they're not sports kids. They're just kids, you know, mm-hmm. and there's nothing particular that keeps them going because they're not playing any of the sports and here they can be a shooter and they become a shooter and it changes their life. That, I, that would be the most gratifying. It's not like you get a thousand of those a day or anything like that, but regularly at those events, the parents come up to us and tell us how it's been a life-changing, positive life-changing event for their kids. I've heard the story not as frequently as you and certainly not as deservedly as you and Brenda, <laughs> uh, but it is absolutely true. It is it That kind of act, access, if you will, it can l- change a kid's trajectory. I've seen it happen. Yes, unquestionably. And uh, second most is we're just now having some of the students who have gone through the program that have drawn money out of the Midway USA Foundation account for their high school or college shooting team are now, some of those are shooting in the Olympics and winning in the Olympics. So that was never really a goal that we wanted to increase Olympic participation and Olympic gold medals. But it's still a pretty gratifying thing to think that these kids this is the most professional that they can ever get, and they graduate out of this into Olympic shooting at the Olympic Training Center there in uh, Colorado Springs. Uh, oh, my gosh. I mean, it, it's not second rate or anything like that. It is the best there is, and it's available all over the world or all over the United States. A, a most pleasant surprise, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, nothing we ever thought about or ever had any goals for, and we still don't have any goals. Uh, I have somewhere along the line tracked how many uh, shooting medals that the U.S. teams have gotten in the Olympics through the years, uh, and just as an awareness several years ago. But that will continue to grow in all the events uh, in the Olympics uh, to some extent because, well, the only thing the foundation has is money. But all the workers out in the field that are helping the kids shoot, that's not us. All we do is 
send them their grants when they ask for grant money mm-hmm. and to all the volunteers out in the field that are doing that. So we feel very blessed to be partnered up with those people that are helping the kids shoot. I love it. If you want to learn more about that aspect of this operation, MidwayUSAFoundation.com. Is that right, Larry? Yes, sir. Okay, there you go. Now, most of us know you as a guy who who's always fiddling on TV with gunsmithing stuff. And I, I, I get it. And I, I'm learning to, to do more and more of that just for fun. Uh, but if you had to talk to a um, passionate, active, avid audience of bird hunting shotgun shooters, what's the one most critical aspect of gun care that you would suggest we pay more attention to? I don't think gun care I would want to talk about. I want to talk about shooting more birds and killing more birds, hitting more birds. And so I would say, well, clean your gun when you finish. But frankly, uh, unless it's a Remington 1100 or a gas gun or something like that, you just have to keep clean to get it to shoot. Almost always, when we pick up our side-by-side or over-under shotgun, it's going to shoot. But the question is, can you hit anything with it? So well, I'm going to switch. I'm going to change your question. All right. For the record, I'm not going to hit anything. But for the rest of you, Larry Potterfield has a tip. <laughs> well, uh, there's three really, really, really important things in a shotgun, uh, or four, that we just don't pay enough attention to. We buy a gun and we shoot it. Uh, you're not going to be able to afford a custom-fitted gun, likely. That's probably the least important of them. But you've got to have the right choke, and almost always everybody is over-choked. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have a gun that fits well, but you've got less choke than what you think you need, the pattern's still going to be bigger and you're going to kill more birds mm-hmm. because you've got a bigger pattern. So don't be out there shooting modified and full when an improved cylinder or skeet would do just fine. So I don't think we understand choke very much. Get out a splatter board or splatter board, get you some Gaylord uh, cardboard or whatever and, and drive it in the ground out there or post it in the ground and see what happens at 15 yards and 20 yards and 25 and 30 and however far you want to shoot it. You need to do that with your turkey shotgun anyway, but if you're shooting upland birds, uh, you need to know what it's doing, and you need to be able to understand the yards that you're shooting. So you're not shooting the first quail at 25 yards. You're shooting at a 10, mm-hmm. you know? And, and when you get my age, maybe it's closer to 15. But, but you get a 15-yard choke if you're going to shoot a 15-yard bird. So choke is really, really, really important. Yeah. A lot more important than the fit of the gun. And then a thing that just nobody ever wants to talk about because it's so difficult to get anybody to deal with it, and that's the trigger pull. A great trigger pull is will get you more of everything than a bad trigger pull. So all the trap shooters and all the skeet shooters, the circuit will fix the triggers on Parazi shotguns and and uh, Beretta shotguns and Kriegoff shotguns, all the stuff that the circuit shooters, the target shooters are doing, they have the benefit of good triggers. Sure. I buy a field gun, uh, especially if it's a semi-automatic or a pump, uh, it's just never going to get that work done. And if you want to buy a side-by-side shotgun, that is, there's nobody shooting side-by-side shotguns in the target circuit. So you're probably not going to get service on that. So you, if you want to shoot well, good choke and good trigger are the two most important things you can do. I, I can't agree more. But what if we are the schmo that not shooting a Krieg off and he needs a better trigger pull? So the question is, how do you get that service done? Yep. Don't call me, okay? (laughs) (laughs) 
but there, so are, there are special there are people yes there are specialists all over america not very many of them but specialists who do that work as a matter of earning a living uh, all over america and especially in the target shooting areas florida and texas and northeast uh that will give you the trigger pull that you need and will even be able to coach you on what you do need but that's critically important they, they may not be able to tell you what choke you need because that's a matter of how far away you're going to shoot that bird a 16 yard bird you shoot with a different choke and you shoot a handicapped bird if you're shooting trap skeet's pretty much all the same all the way around the birds all the same you're not going to change skeet choke tubes from station to station and skeet sporting clays you'll be changing choke tubes a little bit uh, or you'll be shooting modified all the time depending on what clay course you're on mm-hmm. well those are all useful bits of information from a guy <laughs> who knows his stuff Larry, if you were to leave with one prediction for the 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 shooting sports industry, I'll call it uh, in the next two five years, you want to make a prediction for us? What the industry is going to do? Yeah, as a business, mm-hmm. wow, uh, it's going to grow. It's going to continue to grow. It's going to boom, just like it has in the past. Uh, we're going to keep owning guns for the next for the rest of my life. Uh, but not necessarily for the rest of your kids' lives. It mm-hmm. depends on who's in charge of the world, as, as you might know. So I look for continued good times. We've just finished th- this investment here, Scott. Uh, they tell me it's $110 million. Well, what fool would invest $110 million if they didn't think they were going to get it back? So here we are. It's a new distribution center. We're just finishing it up now and shipping packages all over the country. Uh, but I'm, I'm very bullish on the future of the industry. I believe the youth shooting sports programs that we're involved in uh, are very good for the intermediate and long-term strength of the industry. So uh, delighted to be a part of it, Scott. There you go. An optimistic viewpoint from a guy who knows his stuff. Larry Potterfield is the, well, the founder of Midway USA. You know that company. They're right up there with some of the other big brand names in any industry we all know who midway usa is larry great to talk with you again uh next time i will have another box of books and i'll pull one out for you as well thanks for being a part of the upland nation podcast stop by the office in missouri next time you see this area scott please thank you so much have a great weekend talk to you soon goodbye Oh, there's a lot more to come, including the Upland Nation glossary where we get to the letter S. Think about that. What would you put in the glossary? And we'll have industry insider Wes Lang of Caesar Guarini, USA, talking about the, I'll call it the upper end of the shotgun market and some of the things you may or may not know and some insights that you'll not find anywhere but right here on the Upland Nation podcast. We're brought to you in part by sageandbreaker.com. Always free shipping. Did you miss the Father's Day sale? Oh, boy. Well, don't do that again. Sign up for the mailing list at sageandbreaker.com, and you won't miss any more of the sales. You'll get advance notice and even some notices when new products come down the line. You'll hear about it before everybody else. No more missed Father's Day sales. Maybe something uh, for the next gift-giving opportunity. It's all at sageandbreaker.com. Always free shipping. Write this down or type this down or memorize it. Uh, Legacysports.com slash pointer. 
Yeah, pointer shotguns are available only through Legacy Sports and their distribution network. Includes most of the big boxes and a whole bunch of independent firearms retailers around the world. Find out more about where those dealers are located at LegacySports.com and then learn all about the pointer line by putting a slash after that and looking up pointer on their website. They call them a work of art at a price that's a thing of beauty. I cannot say it better. The fit and finish is just outstanding and the price can't be beat. Take a look at their whole line from semi-automatics to over and unders with all those Cerakoted finishes in various colors. Learn more at LegacySports.com slash pointer. Joining me now from somewhere way over on the East Coast, he'll tell us all about it, is Wes Lang. He's the president of Greeny USA, the shotgun company that, um, well, is always doing something new and innovative. Wes, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Thank you for having me, Scott. You know, we we see each other about every third year at something like the SHOT Show, and that's about it. So tell me, what's new at Greeny these days? Well, um in the product line at Karini is our new Invictus 9, which uses that uh, uh, winged forend or boss style forend, and now uh, for a target version, so it's on the Invictus frame, the million round guaranteed heavy duty target frame. And uh, so uh, two years ago, uh, we introduced um, that, that design forend into the field market. And uh, this year, it was an extension. Also, our partner, uh, Bottega Giovanelli, has um, uh, brought out some new techniques for engraving for the gun, which are, are just amazing, uh, this deep relief engraving. So it's a kind of a gothic scroll with gargoyles in it, all that cool stuff. But it's done in a very deep relief all over the gun. And... Uh, um, their technique for doing that is was a little experimental on this this new gun, and the final result is is just stunning. So um, oh. we're excited about it. You know, it's it's not the kind of it's not a high volume product in our our product line. No. It's probably the most expensive gun we've ever produced. Yeah. Um, well, just out of but, curiosity, what is the most expensive gun, and how much? Well, this gun uh, this year, which is uh, relatively limited production uh it's not just for this year it'll be an ongoing product but this year the the production is is not very high numbers um and the msrp i think is uh 1995 something like that so it's uh 19,995 dollars or i'm close there it was just under 20. yeah but if you have to ask then you really don't you can't well, afford it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everything's gotten a lot more expensive. Yeah. Oh, you know, God. to be honest with you, Scott, yeah. I'm still shocked that, you know, when we started 20 years ago, you know, and I still have price lists, you know, that we made up from 20 years ago here. I'm shocked how much even our base product guns have gone up. And as president of the company, you know, and an owner of the company, you know, you would think that's that's kind of an odd comment, but it's it's really not. You know, um, year over year, our only cost of 
cost increases are related to to inflation. Yeah, and yeah. inflation in the gun market is not precisely tied into our general inflation in our economy because the price of steel, for example, can go up much faster than, mm-hmm. you know, the price of insurance, for example. Or, you know, so whatever it is. But when I – so our, our margins have always remained the same. So if you look at a gun we produced 20 years ago and the gun we produce today, if it's the same model, which we have a number of those, uh, and you look at the price difference, that's the cost difference in 20 years of what it took to produce that gun then and what it takes to produce that gun now. Wow. And, and it still shocks me, Scott. You know, I mean, it's kind of independent of our numbers. It That's the cost that – it's really gone up to pay your electric, pay your insurance bills, pay, you know, uh, your employee payroll, employ, you know, buy steel, buy wood, buy components, you know, all those things have increased that much in 20 years. And, you know, it's a bit shocking. Well, you know, speaking of those sort of things and, and you address the inflation question I had, but, but the other one is this whole COVID uh, supply chain question in general how has that affected you guys, and what do you see coming down the pike in that area? Well, the um, the supply chain thing. Well, there's a number of different obstacles yeah. there, yeah. but let's let's relate it specifically to the COVID issue. And uh, what that the end result is, we didn't falter at all through that process. Really, um, there was a little bit of delay because we had to switch from fly, flying product to the U.S. Mm-hmm. to shipping it to the U.S. Um, and, and that would delay us around 20 days, you know, 30 days. Um, but amazingly enough, uh, we kept the factories running all but like three days. Uh, we were mandated to shut down, and um, we were able to to keep production rolling. There was some there were some delays in production, but within the full year, we in twenty one and twenty two, we've produced more product than we've ever have. Wow! And uh, we've got it over. I mean, it's the the challenge is all internal. Um, there are a lot of people that make the assumption that at Garini we um, uh, are having supply problems. The supply problem—it's not a supply problem. We have a demand problem at this time because the market's been so hot that our products are just sold out. And and so dealers or consumers will call up and say, "When can I get you know a basic model like a Summit Sporting?" And we tell them it's November or December. It's because it's sold out through then, and it's we're making more this year than ever. Tough problem to have. I wish I had the same one, but good for you. Um, you know, one well, of the. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> but it is a problem. Yeah. You know, because we yeah. want to give customers what they want. And, and it, it is a temporary, you know, situation. The markets go up and down. You know, next year we could have this conversation, and it could be the opposite one. Boy, we're struggling to sell, you know, every unit we can get out there. We're working, you know, triple time to get that done. And, you know, so you, you take the good times knowing there's going to be some bad ones. Sure. But, you know, um, we just uh, – uh, work through those issues. And, and I hate going back to that. I hate telling a customer, I'm sorry, but I, we can't get you a gun until this point in time. Uh, 
that yeah. is an issue. Yeah, I understand. And, and I wish, uh, like I said, I wish I could say that more often. Um, you, you, um, you are, uh, I'm going to say unique. There's two, there's two camps when it comes to gun companies. There's the camps that are, are run by people who are passionate about shooting and hunting and targets and all of that. And you're in that category. You, you're still an active shooter. You're a champion in many ways on the sporting clays range. Um, and then there's the other companies that are now being gobbled up by holding companies and investment bankers and uh, hedge funds and all of that and run by uh, bean counters or, um, you know, MBAs. What is it about, uh, what is about the shooting sports that keeps you in this industry? Well, you know, for me, it's a passion and, and I love the people. I love the sport. I love, you know, the outdoors. I love the competitive end of it. I love it as much as any of my customers love it. And I'm here doing this because I, I had a epiphany at one point in time when I was young, just got done uh, getting a degree in marketing and really didn't know what that, you know, to really do with it that much, you know, like a lot of kids, you know, lack of uh, a really precise, you know, direction. And, um, I realized that I got really into all kinds of things like, you know, whatever sport or hobby it was. And I, I'd become, you know, I would say borderline obsessed about it, just learning and, and, and figuring it out and the challenges of it. And I realized at the same time, you know, when, for example, I'm not good at accounting, that's not my forte, but when <laughs> I tried to do accounting, it was a Herculean effort to get, you know, a decent grade in there because I hated it. So it didn't take long for me to, to realize that if I could do something that I love doing that I'm already passionate about, I have my best chance for success. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can combine you know, what you're passionate and love to do uh, with what your career is, that, I think that's the ultimate goal. In, in a way, I, tell, I, I have a number of ways of describing it. One is I never work a day in my life because I get to come in and create you know, the things that I love, the toys that I love and the, the toys that the people that are like-minded love. Um, I, um, uh, I, I, I think about it when I go home, if I was going to be an accountant, hypothetically, right. And I didn't <laughs> like, it cause I wasn't very good at it. I, 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 I mean, I have a great respect for the people that are, but if I went home, I would never think about accounting after I clocked out and went home. Yeah. I would never think about numbers. I would never want to know about it. <laughs> the difference is when I go home, I think about what would be the next cool sporting clay gun or the next game gun. Or if I'm, you know, lucky enough to be hunting out in West Texas and, uh, and chasing birds, you know, through the hills. And I thought, boy, I'd, you know, love to have a gun. It's a little lighter, a little this or a little that. I can go back and say, you know, if I think it's cool and I think it works, then other people are, you know, going the same way because it's, you know, what what is good is good, and and uh, that's the way I always look at it. And uh, I guess I'm lucky to come to that conclusion for myself because um, it's made all the difference in the world for me. Oh yeah, and and I, I I hear you. When people ask what I do for a, a living, I say my day job is playing with dogs on TV. There you go. 
There you go. It, it's hard to be really bad at something you really love. Yeah, exactly. This is you the know. Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Wes Lang, the president of Guarini USA. And that's their website address, too. Guarini, G-U-E-R-I-N-I. USA, you know how to spell that, dot com. Wes, you just mentioned something that is, of course, of, of great interest to everybody listening to the Upland Nation podcast, and that's bird hunting. If you had, if you had to nail it down to to one place and and one species, uh, where would you be? Oh, that's that that's a great question. Uh, for me, it's it, it's probably New England in a cover, in somewhere in in one of the traditional covers for grouse, um, and. And for no logical reason these days, because the hunting is very, very hard. It's difficult. There's, you know, the populations are down, mm-hmm. and, you know, but I, I, I would tell you it's where my heart's at, you know, because I did it when I, I have memories of, of, of doing it many years. Uh, and I'm not from that area, but doing it with friends up there, doing it with my father. And so it's kind of where my heart is at now as a quality of hunt, you know, <laughs> there could be a lot better hat in a lot of other places, and I love them all. You know, I there's, I mean, whether it's the you know the Dakotas, I have great memories with a lot of my buddies. You know, hunting through the Dakotas, whether it's Texas or Georgia, on a, you know, a traditional quail hunt, mm-hmm. all those things are fantastic. There's not a bad one in the bunch. I, I think at the end of the day, for most of us as bird hunters, it comes down to, you know, the whole experience and how it left you feeling about it you know it could be the yeah could be the surroundings could be who is with you you know it, it's it's the whole experience plus dogs of course of course <laughs> well but that's not that's that and that's a that's a very good point scott but that's not specific to the place you're hunting necessarily no. right yeah, no so that's, that's a little bit different question right uh, uh, absolutely uh, uh yeah you remind me of the yeah the, the proverbial question about uh man that is like asking me to choose a favorite child <laughs> it's a difficult <laughs> question right and my yeah. and your opinion could yeah. change you know yeah but. it is um you know i want to get back to this because uh we're talking to bird hunters here and you mentioned that new forend on that gun that i'm intrigued by what the, what's the point in changing a forend so um that relates to the forend iron and okay and, All right. you know so the forend iron is um extends upwards along the the edge of the barrel if anyone wants to look it up you know you can can look up that style of gun uh we have a gun called the revenant which yeah. was a, a round body side plated with a, the and tremendously successful for us the last two years with that forend on there. So they can look at the Revenant, they can look at this new Invictus 9, um, which is going to have the same forend iron on there. And the reality of it is, um, like a number of things we do uh, to a double gun, is that essentially it has no necessary function. <laughs> kind of like side, side plates don't have a necessary function, right? Oh, yeah. But neither does engraving, neither does yeah. engraving, yeah. neither does, you know, if, you know, it's maybe a little bit, it's probably a little played out, but the, the, the phrase, you know, a combination of, of art and function, mm-hmm. or, you know, you can phrase that a number of different ways. Everyone likes to use that tagline, but 
when it comes down to styles of guns, double guns for sure are the closest thing you can get to that to that concept of art and function. And uh, we put as much passion into the aesthetics as we do into the engineering. There's more time it goes into engineering. Engineering is a different discipline. Create durability, reliability, precision. Those are it's a different discipline, and it's probably the foundation of what you build a, a, a great gun on. But the aesthetics, which the Italians are known to be very good at, that end of it, um, are are something that is uh, what makes it special. Which is what makes a double gun different. And uh, you know the fact that we have, for example, if you took wood away for, from a double gun it would change the experience immediately because everyone would be, you know, cookie cutter, same as the next one. If I look at 10 of my guns of the exact same model and barrel length, the same skew, 10 of them line them all up. They all have 10 different personalities, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you it, know, because of the wood. It, you know, that, that, that it is not true, but it, you, one wants to think that to a great degree, that is the, the joy of an Italian gun. They do, um, they have a personality per se, and, and it's unique to the company or unique to the model. You know, talk again, talking to bird hunters here, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I carry guns that, that I don't feel bad about falling off a cliff with. Um, but you make some fine field guns, you know, starting at 4,500 or roughly that up to, I'm afraid to guess what the top end is, make an argument for a $7,000 hunting gun. Well, I, 20 years ago, as we talked about, Scott, I'd have a hard, I'd be hard pressed to tell you, but (laughs) seven, and and this, you know, listen, you know, I, you know, I, I feel like everyone else does. You know, it seems like a lot of money. For, today, it's not as bad as that used to be. I would make that point. You know, mm-hmm. I would never have imagined that. But um, I, I think that when it comes to first, there, there's a few thoughts about that when it, as it relates to double guns and new double guns, so new production double guns, not mm-hmm. secondhand guns, mm-hmm. that there is in my mind, an engineering baseline, so a quality baseline that you want, because double guns are a little unique, or unique compared to other types of, of firearms, which we make, you know, because we own the Fab Arm Company, we have Siren, which we do a lot of semi-autos and repeaters and all those guns, so we make all those types of guns um, and, and are familiar with all of them, but what's unique to double guns is they don't want any tolerances. So the tighter, the better, and generally in most of the tolerances. So it has to be very, very precision, where a repeater has to be, um, you have to have much more open tolerances to have it function right. well, right? So it's a less demanding product to manufacture by far. That's why, hence, they're less expensive. So having said that, between the metallurgy, the engineering, the demanding um, uh, how demanding the, a double gun is to produce, there is a baseline where I would tell a close friend that if you can't afford up to this price level, and that's not necessarily our bottom price line. I mean, there's other good, very good guns you can probably have for a little, little less money. Um, if you can't afford that, go with a repeater. Huh. But don't go with a lower-priced double gun because you'll have something that's infinitely less reliable than a, than a top-of-the-line repeater, semi-auto, for example. Or, more to the point, 
if you can't afford the baseline kind of well-engineered double gun, then my recommendation to, you know, my cousin would be to find a real nice, clean used gun, you know, before you invest in a low, low yeah. grade or yeah. lower production quality, because it'll cause you, first of all, you won't get service. Parts will be, and you're going to need parts. <laughs> so, <laughs> do, you, do you know what I'm saying? No, and, and that's no, no, the I advice I would it. give yeah. it. Yeah. Yep. And, and so, because it's the main, and listen, if you never use it and you go out and take it hunting, you know, once or twice a year and it just kind of wanted to get it because you thought it was interesting, there's nothing wrong with that, I guess. You know, but if you're going to use it and you want it to become an heirloom and you not only want to use it the rest of your life, but you want your, your, you know, children to use it and their children to use it, then you need to have, you know, a certain level of quality be in the product. And, and there is, you know, only so cheap you can make a gun of that quality. And, you know, I, I would tell you that, you know, we're not far off that baseline at the bottom of our production level. I think, and, and I don't want to confuse issues, but on the fab arm side, I think we're very, very, very close to that as far as what you can get into it for a real good quality gun that'll last you for a very long time. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We obviously kind of fit, Scott, a little bit between the very, very basic product and like handmade or semi-handmade products or, you know, small, small companies that make very high-end stuff, um, we've always kind of slotted in between. And uh, so, you know, we start from what is our base gun, which is still a very nice gun. Um, and then we, most of our product, honestly, Scott, is between, you know, probably 4,000 and, and 7,000. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we go up much higher than that. We, we don't go up much more than ten to twelve thousand, and then there's some unique models that go a little higher. But, in we're a production company, and and the difference in a production company is that um, when we make a new product like the Invictus Nine, that is absolutely you know has the features of the finest guns in the world on this this particular product, and the fit and finish is fantastic and all that. It is. Um, not done one at a time with hands and files. In other words, we've set it up, we've, we have industrialized the production of that gun. So that takes us a lot of money up front to do that. But then once we do that, we can produce a gun that traditionally, if you look at this gun and you understood what goes into it, if you had it made the old fashioned way, or the, let's say the traditional way, the gun would cost two, three times as much. We can produce it by industrializing it very precisely one after another after another after another and we can bring down the cost for features like this into a realm that you you wouldn't have been able to touch you know if you went out and had a bespoke made gun got it um that that's what we do got right? it roger um t take a moment uh take out the crystal ball and make okay. And, and make a prediction about the gun industry in the next two, three, five years. Where are we going? I think um, I think that at this point in time, that conversation probably is heavily influenced by the, the crazy economic times we're in at this point. Um, more than it has been if we talked about this three years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And and so, uh, 
all goods, but e- even luxury goods and, and what they call, you know, uh, flexible goods, remember my old marketing terms, um, have been selling very, very well because there's so much liquidity in the marketplace, right? And the government has pumped a lot of cash into the marketplace. People have also, at during the same two-year period, have, uh, due to being restricted in travel and place to go, have... Uh, have put a, a more of a focus on a lot of the outdoor activities, whether it be you know, you know boating, skiing, hunting, um, target shooting. These are all things you could kind of gravitate towards when you weren't allowed to fly to, you know, the island to go to a vacation or 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 whatever your your choice was. So we see we've seen an uptick. I think that was ironically caused by COVID, with more people pouring in. And, you know, you can talk to the guys out in the western states and they'll tell you, you know, and look at the statistics, the the application for permits are way, way up, you know, like crazy. Sure. And so you have that effect where people are really, and I think it's great, a, a little bit of a, you know, a, a renaissance of getting back outdoors a little bit. And then combined with all this liquidity in the market and, and um people having the that ability to be able to buy some of the the things they've wanted in the past but couldn't afford uh we have an overly exuberant marketplace at this point in time and uh i think at some point here as the economy starts to slow down and you know i hope like everyone else does it's a slow kind of landing soft landing that we're going to have that the market will return back to some kind of normalization what will end up happening is you'll see some when you start to see that pinch and that contraction in our marketplace which i've seen a number of times uh you'll see certain guns that were imported here stop being imported here you'll see uh a lot of marketing being cut back um you'll see uh, a lack of new introductions of products happen to some degree but there'll be plenty of product on, in the marketplace for sure and it's a great opportunity to buy in that kind of market because you're better you're more likely to get a deal I, uh, that is uh, insightful and useful and uh, I, I i hope everybody uh, remembers that as they go about their shopping business if you will you know i can't can't leave you without asking one question uh, one of our highest priorities as bird hunters is to shoot better you already do if you had to leave us with one bit of shooting advice for the field uh what would it be west lang that's a that's a good question um you know, ironically, a lot of great target shooters are not very good field shots. Oh, I got a because, story for you off air. <laughs> you know, I've, yeah, I've, I've seen it a million times because, you know, um, the dynamics are, are different. You know, a, a clay target starts fast and slows down. A bird starts slow and speeds up. And so the two don't necessarily meet in the middle. Um, Which is, by the way, a uh, great tip in and of itself. <laughs> Yeah, it, well, it, it it is to some degree, you know. Um, I, I think that I think that going out and, and getting a little practice to get comfortable with a gun and to get comfortable with shooting 
is something hunters ought to do from time to time. So go shoot some sporting clays or skeeter trap, but specifically sporting clays because it tries to replicate shooting. And I, I think getting comfortable with a gun is, is important. Um, and, um, you know, the, <laughs> I mean, it's so instinctive, I feel, when we're bird shooting that when you try to apply a lot of don't forget to lead the target, silly stuff like that, you know, yeah, uh, to, yeah. to bird shooting that it, it doesn't re up. Um, it doesn't really apply generally because when you're startled by a bird flushing, let's not a point, but you just walk up on a bird and, and you flush the bird and it catches you by surprise. Nobody thinks that I need to, you know, swing through this bird or, or, or pull away from this bird and lead it by X amount. It's all an instinctive hand-eye coordination. Um, and it's like if I walk up to you and pull a rubber ball out of my pocket and toss at you real quick. You, your hand comes up, you grab it. There was no conscious thought. And I mm -hmm. feel like bird hunting is very similar. And, and therefore, you know, I mean, giving you any specific instructions like I would a, a target shooter, sometimes counterproductive. Um, but I would say, uh, you know, two things that I tell my friends, you know, one is don't be, be afraid to pull the trigger, you know, because if you're not shooting, you're not, you're not going to hit birds. Right. People will hesitate and wonder mm -hmm. and second guess, mm -hmm. you know, but you have to learn, you know, you're always safety is absolutely first, but you know, let your ego go. You know, if, if you're going to miss both shots or, or all three shots, you know, uh, you, you, you know, take three shots. I mean, you might miss, well, you might miss, but if you don't take any shots, you're definitely not going to hit that bird. So I love it. Yeah. You know, it's like fly fishing. I tell, I used to instruct fly, fly fishing to large groups. And I'd say, you can't catch any fish with all those false casts in the air. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, pull the, don't be afraid to pull the trigger. Um, and you know, keep both eyes open and focused on the target. And that's about all. I think all you can do. Well, whether it's business or hunting, focusing on the target is important, and you are clearly doing both. Wes Lang is the president of Greeny USA. You learn more about them at greenyusa.com. Hey, been fun. This is, I think, the longest conversation we've ever had without a sixty thousand other people in the room with us. So I appreciate that as well. And uh, uh good luck and looking forward to more exciting things coming out of you guys. And thanks for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Well thank you for having me, Scott. I really appreciate it. We still have your questions and my answers from the Facebook page on what you're training for these days. And the Upland Nation glossary gets to the letter S right after a quick message. All right, two messages. First, from our friends at Huron, South Dakota. The Ringneck Nation is what they call themselves, and I understand why. More birds than people. 124,000 acres of public access within an hour's drive of downtown Huron, South Dakota. Take a look at the maps, get the hunting atlas, get all sorts of discounts, information, maps. I said maps twice because it's important to me and probably to you. It's all available at hunthuronsd.com. And if you want to be a better shooter when you get there, consider midvalleyclays.com. You can book yourself a lesson with one of the many shooting instructors there, depending on what you're shooting at and why. 
they'll have an instructor that will meet your needs. Go on over sometime if you're in Western Oregon. And if you're shopping for a shotgun or apparel, they have some of the harder to find stuff and some of the harder to find sizes, gauges, whatever you're looking for, midvalleyclays.com, including After Hours Wednesday. If you're in Western Oregon looking for a place to shoot after work on a Wednesday, just call ahead. They'll stay as late as the last shooter wants to stay. They've got lights. See you at midvalleyclays.com. All right, of the many S listings in the Upland Nation glossary, which, by the way, is available at findbirdhuntingspots.com, is this one for me, Spinone Italiano. No, it's not another ice cream flavor, although we do have some fun with that once in a while. It's a versatile hunting breed from, yes, of course, Italy. One of the many, what I'll call coarse-haired or wire-haired breeds. The Spinoni Italiano is, I, I guess I'll describe it as a German wire hair on steroids. A little bit longer legged, a little bit bulkier body, still an elegant looking, beautiful dog. That rough, wiry coat, usually in a, a cream colored with some, uh, what the Brittany guys call orange or some shades of gray and brown with a little bit of white. The Spinoni Italiano style is a little bit slower moving, a little bit more deliberate. I know I'm being kind here, but I don't want to tell that story about the NAVDA test. If you know me, you know that story. Anyway, if you're looking for a deliberate hunting, methodical, versatile hunting breed, take a look at the Spinoni Italiano. And whether you're hunting with a Spinoni or a Brittany or anybody else out there in the bird dog world, we're all working on the same thing this time of year. For me, it's stop to flush. Going back to basics on this one because, well, Flick is getting a little bit casual in some of his approaches to some of his birds. And especially that steadiness after the flush and the fall. So that's on my training agenda for this week. How about yourself? Well, a little bit of everything. Paul Sternad says, running long straight lines on blind retrieves with sitting on the whistle. His goal, one of every four times. Okay, I, I might settle for the same thing with Flick. Jay Lawners, good luck, and I hope you recover soon. He's trying to get his fractured knee back into shape so he can start running the dog. Jake Tokosik is getting his dog used to Rex Specs. He's sitting along a picture of his dog bringing back a docking dummy with goggles. Yeah, you've seen them before. You'll see them again. They're all over the place these days. And I'm, I tell you, I'm thinking seriously about them in cheatgrass country. Thanks for that. Bruce Olson is working hard on the duck search and that is a lifelong goal for so many folks going to the NAVDA utility level and it, Bruce it, that is not a duck search I can tell it's a nice dry field and there's one dog pointing and two dogs backing man I wish I could find a field like that my cover is a little bit too tall I have to use my GPS even out behind the house because the cover is taller than flick Rob Warner working his puppy 
beautiful looking English setter, almost all white with a little tick on one of the right on the right ear. He's a steady, beautiful, well-conformed white setter, pretty background. I mean, all the pictures this time of year are great because everything's so green and lush, including what looks like a manicured lawn in front of a beautiful pond, kind of like a golf course, but I know it's not. I know it's not, Rob. Thanks for sharing that picture. And then, of course, he couldn't leave the Facebook discussion without showing another picture of his older broke dog, Rob Warner's beautiful white with a dark head and a little bit of ticking throughout the body, beautiful yeah, you can tell. You know, you look at two pictures of dogs, and besides their confirmation, you can tell a dog that's more experienced. So thank you all for sharing your training goals for the week. I'll keep you posted on Flick. So far, so good. We're getting ready for quail season. We're going to do a study on that this year, so looking forward to it. Um, thank you all for your contributions. And speaking of training, uh, have you signed up yet for the Ronnie Smith Seminar? Foundation level seminar at Highland Hills Ranch, August 27th through 28th. That's in Northeast Oregon. So if you're going to be in that country about then, learn more about Ronnie's seminar. I've been once. I'm going back just to get caught up with Ronnie more than anything else. But I'm looking forward to learning. I always learn something when I hang around with that guy. Get more information and uh, register online at Ronnie Smith kennels.com and with that i will thank number one all of our great sponsors uh from uh roughland performance kennels to sage and breaker to pointer shotguns mid-valley clays and the ring nation nation of huron south dakota thank you larry potterfield of midway usa and west lang of caesar guarini for uh sharing your insights on the industry helping us become better consumers thank you to all of the folks who comment at social platforms when I ask questions. I, I learn something every time I read those, and I read them all. And particularly, thank you to those who left ratings and reviews. You know, they go a long way towards getting other people involved in the Upland Nation. So take a moment the next time you're over there at Apple Podcasts and, and give us a review. Hopefully a good one. Particularly, though, I want to thank all of you who've stuck with us. You know, we're going on two years here. I'm so grateful for your support. If you're a listener, and you are, or you wouldn't be hearing this, thank you so much. Be safe. Hope to see you in the training field. 